join in with us here. So we'll just give them a little moment or two to gather in. Brother Neville said about the Sunday school coming in, you might have to sing another verse. And I thought, well, we'll keep that in mind. And then I saw all the children going out, and some of the children going out, and I thought to myself, I've got that wrong. And I've still got it wrong. There's three options, and I haven't got one of them right this morning at all. But we'll give them just a little moment to go around. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and the verse 10. And we're going to read right down to the end of the passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and the verse 10. And hear the word of the Lord, the apostle speaking to this church of Corinth. The church of Corinth is a somewhat troubled congregation that's had its problems. And uh, Paul here is writing to them. Verse 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may, may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that you may have somewhat the answer them, which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then were all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Amen. May God bless the public reading of his own inspired and errant and infallible word. Let's seek his face again just for a moment, please, 
in prayer. Heavenly Father, the hour has come again for the preaching of thy word. We feel our great need of the infilling of the Spirit of God. We're always conscious, Lord, at the arm of flesh, it will surely fail, that all human skill is vain. We pray that this morning your word may come, not in word only, but in demonstration and in power, and that we might say, truly, the Lord was among us. The Lord was in this place. We heard his speaking voice. Give us, Lord, that heart that will say, Lord, here am I. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Hear an answered prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's the words of verse 11 that we want to give a little bit of thought to this morning as we're gathered here. The Apostle Paul there, the opening part of that verse says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. The various evangelical commentators, of course they're all readily available now, used to be in the old days you had to buy the books, and you picked them up second hand or new, and you put them on your shelves. But now they're within reach. If you have Wi-Fi and a computer, you can get all these different commentators, the great commentators, Matthew Poole, Henry, John Gill, Calvin himself, and so on. Well, they are divided concerning the meaning of this text. Uh, the commentators are good. Sometimes the Bible throws light on the commentators. Uh, well, sometimes we go to the commentators to throw light on the Bible. But they seem to be divided, especially concerning the great central phrase, the terror of the Lord. Knowing the terror of the Lord. The word there in the, in the original language is sometimes translated just by the word fear. The word is phobos. We talk about having a phobia. Some people have phobias maybe about spiders. Roar from the bathroom, there's a, a spider in the bath. Maybe have a phobia about spiders. The word just means fear. And it is often translated in our authorized version as fear, as in the fear of the Lord. And when we talk about the fear of the Lord, often it's just another phrase for great piety. We talk about a God-fearing man. That's a man who walks according to the Word of God. He has ordered his life according to the Scriptures. His desire is to please God, and he will pray. He'll be a praying man a godly man, a God-fearing man. The churches in the book of Acts, notably after the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, it says of them they were walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it was days of holiness and days of great piety. And the argument goes, backed up largely by the context that Paul was speaking in our text and in our passage very defensively here. He was seeking to defend his position, which was under great attack from people within the congregation. You know, it's one thing when the foes are outside. 
and the local press is against you, and maybe others are harping at you from the outside, well, that's one thing. But when the trouble is inside the church, oh, then it's a different ballgame. And here the apostle had to defend his position because there were people in the Corinth congregation, people maybe even in leadership places within it, and they were attacking his authority and claimed to have power over him. Now, this was not an attempt by Paul to be popular. When Paul wrote to the church at Galatia, he said, I have no desire, words to the fact, to be the servants of men. Because he said, if I was a servant of men, in other words, trying to keep everybody happy and trying to keep everybody on board and running here, there, and hither, uh, all just to be popular, I would not be the servant of Christ. But he had to defend, for all that, his apostleship. Because an apostle, an apostle was a man who was sent of God. And when there was the rejection of the apostles, then there was the rejection of God, because they were God's sent men. And of course, that would have horrible consequences. And so he sought to persuade men to ignore and to reject the false and to follow after the truth. It's only the truth at the end of it all that'll set men free. Well, this is well and good. However, the word is also translated terror in two other places in the Bible. We have it here, and we also have it in Romans chapter 13, where it says that those who are in authority over us, the government, whom we are to obey because they have been raised up of God, uh, they are to be, it says, a terror, not to good works, but the evil. And you would say, well, yes, the word should be terror there, because what we ought to have, and it's slipping away from us, but we ought to have a government that's very, very hard in crime, getting the message out to the criminals, crime does not pay. Be a terror, a terror under the evil works. And then again it is used in First Peter chapter 3, where uh, Peter was writing to persecuted Christians. And these were people going through the mill. These were people who were really paying a hard price because they were Christians. I don't think we really, really know in this country what it is to be persecuted yeah, somebody might say something nasty to you, and you might get a bit of a hard time maybe through the press and so on. But in Peter's day, things were really hard indeed. And Peter wrote to the, uh, the people, the, the, the strangers scattered and so on, and he says to, says to them, these persecuted Christians, be not afraid of their terror. So we would say, yes, well, there's a place where it should be translated terror. And even when it is translated by the word fear, it clearly denotes terror. Because in Luke's Gospel, chapter 21, as we have it in our authorized version, it talks about a time when men's hearts will fail them for fear, for terror, because it's an event associated with our Lord's Return. The disciples 
It says on that first Lord's Day morning, oh, how easy it is for us to gather. But if you go back so many thousand Sabbath days, or Lord's Days to be more precise, right back to the first gathering of the saints on the first day of the week, it says the doors were locked. The doors were locked for fear, again, for terror of the Jews. So I think there's room to see that these words also might have an evangelistic thrust as well. John Gill, the great commentator, referred to him earlier. Uh, he preferred this interpretation. But I think that we can at least settle this morning for an application. And very much so because we are not only evangelical Christians. If somebody said, well, I see you're preaching in Clocker Valley Church on Sunday morning. How would you describe the church? Well, I say we're free Presbyterian. The word Presbyterian then would bring in the Reformed Doctrine, Westminster Confession of Faith. I would also say we are a, a fundamental church. We're fundamentalist. We're evangelical. We'll take that title. And, but we're not only evangelical. We ought to be evangelistic as well. Evangelical seems to relate to what we believe, but evangelistic is what we believe and what we do. And we sang that hymn this morning. It kind of picked itself throughout the lifeline, across the dark wave. That's an evangelistic hymn. It's a hymn. It's an evangelism hymn. Maybe be a better way of putting it. Calling for us as God's people, especially during days of gospel mission. The week has gone. We can't recall that week back again. It's away forever now. What we could have done and should have done, well, it's gone. But there's still a week that lies ahead. And then, of course, we ought never to forget, when the mission is gone, you still have your regular meetings. I always think when we, we talk about special meetings, does that mean the others aren't special? Does that mean they're non-special meetings? If you elevate one, do we denigrate the other? Always remember there's the ongoing work of the church. The evangelists will soon be gone. We'll move on to pastures new. But there's a regular Sabbath evening meeting. There's gospel meetings. There's other meetings. And seek to get people in if you are a child of God. We ought to be evangelistic Christians. And here's this good reason why. Because knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Four thoughts for you uh, to look at this morning. First of all, what is the terror of the Lord? Let's break this down a little bit further. What is the terror of the Lord? Well, we might refer to it here, first of all, as the conviction of sin. The conviction of of sin. Now, sin is very easily defined because the Bible defines it for us, and therefore we're not worried about opinion polls, we're not worried about referendums or those sort of things. The Bible is very, very clear. Sin is the transgression, that is, the breaking of the law of God. It is not defined by men. The government has no right to define what sin is, define marriage and all those kind of things. These things have all been settled in the Word of God, to which all men, saved or unsaved, must bow. 
to the authority of Scripture. It has been defined by our Creator God. When we think about God, let us not forget that He is our Creator God. And that gives Him automatically the sovereign right to define sin. Because it is in God. Every one of us live and move, and we have our being. We think of those words uh, Noah preached on them, or he referred to them overnight in Daniel chapter 5. Those words that Daniel spoke to Belshazzar, the God in whose hand thy breath is. Did you ever think of that? You're a breathing people. Nobody has killed over yet. The God in whose hand your breath is. Thou hast not glorified. That was more than an observation. That was a word of rebuke. And God as our creator, God, has every right to tell us what sin is. And it doesn't matter in this sense that God's law is not universally received. God does not do God by consent. You can't vote God out of office. You know that a lot of people hold office for a little while and then they have to run for re-election, get a mandate to go back. But God doesn't put himself up for election every five or seven or ten years or whatever it is. And God graciously, even if it's not appreciated, God graciously sends his Spirit into the world, yes, into the world, to convict, that is, to convince the world of sin. And he uses the conscience because the use of the, uh, the preach word, why, why, why do we preach the word? To inform the consciences of men. The conscience is God's whistleblower. It's God's agent on the inside. And when the preacher comes along and he preaches the word of God, there ought to be an informing of the conscience of man. That's what happened. That's what happened. And the day of Pentecost, these men, it says, they were pricked in their heart. Peter preached the word of God. He denounced their sin. He said to them, ye crucified the Lord of glory. Yes, he was sent by the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. It was always going to happen. But nevertheless, your wicked hands, that was straight preaching, wasn't it? Your wicked hands, crucified your own Messiah. And it says, they were, when they heard these things, they never thought of this. But here's information, fresh information coming to them. And hearing these things, they were pricked in their heart. You ever been pricked? You feel the pain, don't you? You feel the pain. You prick yourself in a thorn. Ouch, you say. Well, these men were pricked in their hearts, the very center of their being. I went into the very depths of their soul. And it says that they were troubled. They had this great feeling of terror. Guilt swept over many individuals. And they cried, men and brethren, what shall we do? We're going to return to that thought just in a little moment of time. The terror of the Lord of which we are aware may be seen to be a reference to the Lord's sufferings at Calvary. We know the terror of the Lord because we know the story of the cross. It was God put his son on the cross. 
There were sufferings on the cross, and primarily it was a penal suffering, because whatever else we might draw from it, and there are several theories, some of which have a lot of truth in them, but at the end of it all, we have to say it was the Lord himself, not just the Jews, not just the Roman soldiers and the Gentiles, not just Judas who betrayed him, Peter who denied him. It was the Lord who laid on him the iniquity of us all. It pleased the Lord, meaning it was the will of God to do what? To bruise him. He was wounded, wounded by God for our transgressions. And oh, what terror we see there. What terror we see at the cross. The hymn writer said, none of the ransom, none of the ransomed ever knew how dark, how sorry, how deep were the waters crossed, how dark was the night that the Lord passed through. Ere he found the sheep that was lost. We're called often to keep this before us. We have a communion table, don't we? Once a month or thereabouts, we, we break the bread, the broken bread, the notes, the body that was broken for us. There's terror. We gaze upon the cup, don't we? The wine that we taste, it reminds us in that symbolic fashion of shed blood. We're somewhat familiar, are we not, with the terror of the Lord? The terror of the Lord may be seen in hell itself in hell itself. Now, none of us have ever been there. Obviously, we're here. Your man goes to hell, he's lost forever, but we read about it in the Bible, don't we? And we've heard it preached. And at the end of it all, no matter how uncomfortable we might be, if we're evangelical people bound to the authority of the Word, we believe it to be true. And we think of that verse that says, God spared not his own son. And if God spared not his own son at that place called Calvary, and there you see the hatred of God for sin, because he made Christ who knew no sin, the last verse of our reading, he made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us. And if God spared not his own son, what makes you think he's going to spare the wicked dead? The words of Psalm 88, verse 16, could hardly be more appropriate. Thy fierce wrath goeth over me. Thy terrors have cut me off. You know, when our Lord Jesus comes back again, and we're looking forward to him coming back, two things are going to happen in the one event. First of all, as the hymn writer put it, he's going to gather his loved ones home. And that's why as God's people we say, even so, even so come, Lord Jesus. But he's coming back also to deal with the ungodly, with the wicked who are still alive at that time. And he's coming back, the Bible says, in flaming fire to take vengeance. There's a terror word. Take vengeance on those who know not God. Suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Thus far, the terror of God. I must move quickly here. Number two, how do we know such terror of the Lord? For it just doesn't speak about the terror of the Lord. The first word, the verb, is knowing the terror of the Lord. 
Well, in regards to conviction of sin, those of us who are saved have experienced it for ourselves. It must be said some to a greater degree than others. I think you see that very clearly in Acts chapter 16, where we had the conversion of Lydia. And she's sitting in a most tranquil scene. She's sitting by a riverside. You can almost, if you were going to paint the picture of it, you would have the, the water, little brook running past, the rustle of the trees and so on. A most pleasant scene. It's out of the city. It's all bustling. Oh, this is so quiet. And just there, as Paul preached, her heart was opened. And that woman was saved. But then you go into the prison the Paul afterwards, don't you? And there you have that rough man, that bully, that thug that they put over the running of the prison. He cast the men of God into the inner prison. He made sure their feet were in the stocks. What cruelty there was in that man, but God spoke to him. He came under conviction of sin, trembling. He asked for a light. So there's different levels of conviction of sin. But nevertheless, you think of Felix, he trembled. Paul reasoned. There's an interesting word, isn't it? He reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. Felix trembled. Again, conviction of sin. Different levels. We know such terror of the Lord because we have read it in the Bible. And we believe it. Things God has spoken are certain and true. We read of men at the end of time, calling in terror. When you call for the rocks and the hills to fall upon you, that you will be swept away and wiped out in an avalanche, you say, well, what is the alternative? If that's the better option, meeting God in your sins, that's the alternative. They will call on the rocks and the hills to cover them and to hide them from the face of him who sits, throne, sits upon the throne of God because the great day of his wrath is come. And who is able to stand? We've heard the anecdotal stuff as well. You can take it or leave it if you want. But many years ago, there was a, an atheist, very loud atheist, a skeptic, an attacker of God's Word, a French man called Voltaire. He's the man who boasted that the Bible would be within 50 years or 100 years of museum peace, and people would look up behind the glass case and laugh and giggle that anybody would believe it. Oh, what, what he was going to do and all oh, what he was going to say. But of course, he come as everybody must come. He come for the end of his days. Death knocked one day at his door. He spent his last few weeks, last few days in bed. He was attended to by a Christian nurse. And she left in record that as he died, he alternated between cursing God and then crying for mercy. So he was cursing God on one hand, but he was pleading with God on the other. And then he went back to and fro in a delirium between the two. And his nurse said, for all the wealth in Europe, I would never watch another infidel die. Do all infidels die like this? No, not all, but some do. 
They spend their lifetime, the Bible says, subject to bondage through fear. There's our word, through the phobos of death. A death that is described in Job 18 and 14 as the king of terrors. Thirdly here, we must move on quickly. The consequences as Christians. The consequences as Christians for knowing the terror of the Lord. So we've seen what it is. We've seen how we know it. Now, what's the consequences for us? And what does it say here in our text? Knowing, therefore, there's a logic here, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. And there's the evangelism. We persuade men. We ourselves have fled from the wrath to come. We have found the only place of refuge in the Lord Jesus. How often he said to Jerusalem, I would have gowered you as a hen gowers her chickens under her wings. That's a place of refuge. It's a place of safety. And he says, that's what I would do. And we ourselves, having tasted of this love, let us sing of his love once again. That's what we sing. Love compels us to warn others. You know, when you perceive not only danger, but a real certain calamity coming, you do something about it. You would never live with your conscience if you knew something was going to happen. A bomb was going to go off up the road or something in the hotel, crowded with people. You knew about it. You said nothing. I can't be bothered. Now, I'm going this direction. I'll not affect me. And if you got word through that dozens of people were killed, you would have that in your conscience forever. I could have prevented that. I could have raised the alarm. We could have got that hotel evacuated and everybody out and nobody harmed at all. You see, we're like the watchman in the tower. That's the language of Scripture, Ezekiel 33. I mean, that man was paid to go up into the tower to keep watch over the city. He had a duty. And if the enemy came, even if it was in the middle of the night and everybody was in their bed and nobody felt like getting up, it was for him to put the trumpet to his mouth and blast the trumpet so that everybody would know that there was danger. We have not only a duty. A duty can be an awful cold word at times, but we'll have a burning desire. You see, this isn't something that you can see Men are lost and then on it. Once you get that burden upon your heart, once you believe the Bible and you see the seriousness of it all, then that puts you over the line and there must be something that I can do. So how do we do it? Well, we tell the gospel story, don't we? The nuts and the bolts of all the message. We talk about Christ coming to save the sinner, Christ dying for the ungodly, Christ rising and triumph from the grave, for it's only a, a living Savior who can save to the uttermost. And we make clear the way of salvation, that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's a lot of different ways of doing it. Sometimes, usually the best way is to approach through the relating of our experience. Maybe somebody says, do you know there's something different about you? You seem a very sort of happy fellow. What's the secret? You seem very content. I hope you're content today. Because godliness with contentment is great gain. And if they can see the contentment, you tell them about the godliness. 
and you tell them how, how you've come to know Christ as your Savior, and you put your head on the pillow at night, and you can say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And you can look out into the world with all its problems and know that there's a steady hand on the tower when men's hearts are failing them for fear. You can say, I have peace like a river, and it's flooding my soul. And then I can lead on to why we trust him. Give your testimony. Realized I was lost. Then I saw that Christ on the cross died for my sins, and I trusted him. But it's much more, you know, than merely stating facts. The language here is that we persuade men. That goes a little further. That means you need to logically defend your faith. Be always ready, it says, to give reason of the hope that lies within you. That's what we call, or they call apologetics. We can defend what we believe. They need to know your Bible for that. Paul expressed his joy for being able to answer for himself. In fact, he said, I, I answer here, the more cheerfully. He's standing before Felix. Felix is the judge. Paul is the prisoner. Paul's the happier of the two. In fact, he's the more cheerful. And at the end of it all, and Paul didn't threaten him. Felix trembled. Felix trembled, not Paul. Paul, Paul was happy just to be there, just to be happy. Later on, we have a man called Agrippa. He stood before him. Again, Paul says, I'm happy to be here. And he brought forth, it's very interesting, a persuasive argument. In the course of his defense of himself, he says unto him, why should it be thought a thing incredible with you? Why is it unbelievable? I believe it. And why can you not believe it? that God should raise the dead. It also means that with diplomacy intact, that we demolish false teachings and false hopes of rival doctrines. The Thessalonians turn from idols to serve God because Paul used persuasive arguments to do so. Now, we're not to use the enticing words of man's wisdom we're not to get into double talk, but to bring good, solid biblical arguments. State the truth. Put it out there. Let God take care of it after you have spoken it. Say, well, this is what I believe. And this is taking me heavenward. This is taking me homeward. And millions of us believe this here. Paul said that his evangelism was attended to in demonstration. That was God's part and demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Fourthly and lastly here, what's the consequences of persuading men? What happens when we persuade men? Souls are saved. Souls are saved. They're saved from the terror of the Lord because sin's guilt has been removed and taken away. Mr. Top Lady wrote those words. They're powerful words. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hides all my transgressions from view. Now, those are powerful words, aren't they? God says to every child of God this morning, your sins and your iniquities 
will I remember no more. Far, far away by the blood current swept, cleansing for me, cleansing for me. But we're saved to something. We always talk about what we're saved from, but we're saved to something. He saves to the uttermost. We're saved to a life of holiness. That's why we were chosen, as we sang earlier. Not for good in me, but we're chosen in Christ that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. And not only are souls saved, but greater again. You say, well, what could be greater than the salvation of a soul? God is glorified. That's our chief end, isn't it? Man's chief end, to glorify God. When a man is saved, a woman is saved, yes, a boy or a girl gets saved. It is always to the praise of the glory of his grace. And when the redeemed of God, and not one will be lost, when the redeemed of the Lord gower in heaven, when all the persuading and all the converting is done, it says they sung a new song. Thou art worthy. Thou art worthy. Let's go out this morning. And the incoming week, again, there's special meetings, not to the demise of the hours. But let's go out and seek men and persuade men and women and boys and girls to be part of this great number. And say to them, there's room at the cross for you if you'll come. Because whosoever will, let him come and take freely of the water of life. There's the invite, there's the reason. There's the logic, there's the persuasion. Take freely of the water of life. May the Lord bless these words to all of our hearts this morning. We're going to close by singing the, the hymn 195. I understand this is the offering hymn, 195.